Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with the Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network. And our guest today is uh, Stephanie Hoffman, who has translated a, uh, a pretty large memoir uh, of a guy by the name of Julius Markelin, who survived a number of uh, Soviet work camps. Uh, so thank you for being here with us today, Stephanie. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, so could you start off by telling us a bit uh, about yourself, uh, how you came to do a translation uh, project like this, uh, you know, how you got interested in the subject uh, overall? Okay. Uh, well, my field, uh, my academic field was both uh, Russian literature and Soviet and uh, Russian intellectual history. And I worked at the Hebrew University Mayrock Center for many years. I've I've also done uh, various translations of people, mainly Soviet Jewish activists who were in Soviet camps, such as Natan Sharansky, uh, Hillel Budman, the Leningrad Leningrad hijacking, and others. Um, I must say I read this particular book many years ago in the 70s when I was working on a project dealing with several uh, memoirs of Soviet uh, labor camps. And at the time, I read only an abridged version. But nevertheless, I felt that this was the most powerful book of the many that I read. And I wanted to bring this book, share it with uh, English readers. It was only available in Russian at the time. Uh, So I I was very happy when the opportunity came later. And by that time, a more fuller version had been published in other languages, uh, which I felt was gave an even better picture of both who Margolin was and of the uh, camp experience. So uh, do you think, because because Margolin is not uh, quite as much of a household name in the, the English-speaking world like, like Solzhenitsyn is, uh, um, I was wondering if maybe you could just uh, hold forth for a bit on uh, who the author of this memoir is. Uh, you know, where where's he coming from? What's his background? I think that'd be kind of helpful for people listening in. Yes, I, I think so. Julius Margolin had a very rich life, uh, full of tumultuous and traumatic events uh, in the 20th century. He was born in 1900 in Pinsk, uh, which was then part of the Jewish area of settlement of the Russian Empire. He, in fact, was educated in the Russian language and Russian culture, uh, 
but at, he also spoke Polish and Yiddish and had great respect for Polish culture and Jewish culture. His early education was in schools in the Russian Empire, and then he uh, furthered his education by going to Germany, where he studied philosophy at the University of Berlin and started in 1923 and received his PhD in 1929. While he was there, he met and married a fellow uh, philosophy student named Eva Spector, and they had a son there. And uh, later, after the, he received his PhD, they moved to Lodz, Lodz in, in Polish, but we'll call it Lodz. Uh, there he worked as a journalist and writer and met Zev Jabotinsky and became involved in his Beitar movement and Zionism, uh, the movement to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine. In fact, following that ideology, in 1936, he moved his wife and son to Tel Aviv in British Mandate Palestine. But in order to uh, have the money to pay for a, a British residency permit, uh, he agreed to work for a relative ma managing a factory in Łódź in Poland. Um, and the agree according to the agreement, he was would finish his job September 3rd, 1939. Well, as we all know, <laughs> two days before that, uh, the Nazis invaded Poland and World War II started, and he was caught. <laughs> um, and the war was basically total chaos. Uh, People just, the, the Poles were shocked at the invasion itself and uh, at the incompetence of their government and army. And uh, Margolin, feeling trapped, of course, tried to escape, but he failed. Uh, in fact, at the beginning of the book, uh, there is a map which traces his zigzag efforts to get out, cross any border, Romania, Lithuania, but it, but it all failed. Um, so then uh, <laughs> he managed, he, he was caught, then at, on September 17th, the uh, Soviet Union also invaded Poland, and at that time he was in the uh, area which the, which the Soviets invaded, and he was still trapped, <laughs> and, and he still tried frantically uh, to escape. Eventually, um, the, the Soviets, contending that Poland was no longer a country, tried to force everyone in their sector to accept Soviet citizenship. Margolin refused, and this eventually resulted in his arrest on June 19, 1940, and he was sentenced to five years in the Gulag, the system, which is the system of forced labor camps spread throughout the Soviet Union. So the main section of the book, uh, which we will discuss as we go along, records his torturous journey 
away from the civilized world to which he was accustomed and into the hell of the gulag. Uh, there barely surviving many harrowing experiences as a zek, which is the Russian abbreviation for the word for a prisoner in the camp. Margolin was released in June 1945 after serving his five years. Um, but he wasn't permitted to leave the Soviet Union, so he chose exile in Slavgorod in the Altai region, which is in West Siberia. He had the name there of an exile who helped him. Then, thanks to a repatriation agreement between the Soviet Union and the puppet Polish government, Margolin, who had remained a, a Polish citizen, was able to leave the Soviet Union in March 1946. He spent several months then in post-war Ruj in Poland while waiting for British documents that would enable him to travel to Palestine. Distressed by the destruction of the Jewish world around him there, he simultaneously describes seeing the effervescent pre-war city in his mind's eye and at the same time as he observes the post-war city without Jews. He returned to Palestine via Paris in September 1946. Upon his return, Margolin was burning with a desire to publicize the horrible truth about the Soviet Union and the gulags and to promote freedom of emigration for Soviet Jewry. He testified in order to advance uh, this goal he testified, in, he traveled to testify uh, about the Soviet Union. For example, uh, he testified in Paris, 1950 to 51, at the trial of David Rousset, a non-Jewish concentration camp survivor who called for an investigation of Soviet forced labor camps. Accused of lying by a French communist paper, Rousset sued the, the paper, and he eventually won. Margolin also spoke at the UN about Soviet labor camps, and he worked hard with Israeli organizations trying to publicize the plight of Soviet Jewry. In addition to his memoirs, after his return to Palestine, Margolin wrote many articles in the 1950s and 60s in the local press, in both Russian and Hebrew, to advance his causes. Uh, at first, he wrote regularly for the um, press of the Heirut Revisionist, Revisionist Party, led by Menachem Begin, but he broke with them over several issues. For one, he felt that West Germany was no longer the enemy, and all efforts should be directed to bringing down the Soviet system and supporting the growth of democracy in West Germany, as a bulwark against Soviet invasion. He also wrote works on history and philosophy. He died in Tel Aviv in 1971. Uh, something that, that comes out uh, uh, in a pretty interesting way in the earlier part of that memoir is, is the kind of the terrible set of choices that, that Jews in Poland faced about either uh, except in Soviet citizenship, or some of them actually, you know, in in more or less full knowledge, uh, went back to Germany. Is that something you could 
you could comment on for a bit uh, that that kind of choice that those people had? Yeah, certainly. Uh, perhaps earlier, would you like me to say something about the history of the publication of the memoir first? Uh, yeah, if you want to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, I wanted to get to that. So if you if you think it'd be best to talk about that now, certainly go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, the book's origins go back to his time in camp uh, when he was determined to survive in order to reveal the truth about the Soviet Union and, and, and the camps. In fact, he already came to the horrible realization there that um, he was not just an outsider, but his experience had deformed him. He couldn't be a perfect observer, so to speak, that um, this was something that was going to affect his perspective for the rest of his life. Um, and as I said, when he came back, that was the first thing to Palestine. That was the first thing he did. But even on the ship, when he was returning, uh, prophetically, uh, a member of the Jewish-Palestinian elite, a, a journalist, warned him that the, that elite, which was pro-socialist, would probably not be very supportive of, of his effort. Um, and, in fact, he finished the memoir in October 1947, but he was unable to find a publisher. Um, indeed, the political elite uh, both admired the Soviet Union and Stalin, and they were fearful at that time of losing Soviet support for a Jewish state. So it, it did not come out then. Um, excerpts appeared first in French translation in Paris in 1949. And then a French publishing house published an abridged version of the memoirs in 1949, entitled La Condition en Humain, like as opposed to uh, Malraux. Um, in 1952, a Russian emigre publisher in New York called Chekhov Publishing House put out an even more abridged version in Russian. They were interested only in exposing Soviet atrocities, so they admitted entirely the chapters about Margolin's time in Poland before his arrest and other parts of the main uh, story. This Russian version, however, was smuggled subsequently into the Soviet Union and circulated secretly in uh, intelligentsia circles in the following decades, Moscow, Leningrad, and the Baltic states. And we, states, and we have uh, this mentioned by various literary critics and dissidents that it did have uh, an effect. At, in the 60s and 70s, and editions of the same kind of abridged editions appeared in German translation and a Russian republication. It's only much later, more recently, through the efforts of Luba Jurgensen, a literary scholar at the Sorbonne, that a full French translation of the full Russian edition was published in 2010 to critical praise. Polish, German, and Hebrew translations of this full text follows, as well as a publication in Israel of the full text in Russian, which hadn't been published before, in 2014. This current work, 
is the first translation of the complete work in English. In addition, this book contains chapters describing Margolin's return via post-war Poland and France to Palestine. We thus have a full saga with the camp story framed by the introductory chapters in Poland, which I do think are important, and the concluding ones of his return home. So that's the, the history. That's um, quite, a, quite a story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't all have such problems in getting published. <laughs> so what um, so now I can, so, yeah. yeah so now now you kind of looked at uh um you know looked at the overall uh history of the the book then uh could you could you comment now on the 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 question of of the the jews in poland there at that kind of chaotic moment yeah, I, I think that's a very important part of the whole tale. I think it was a shame that it was omitted earlier. Um, these, uh, his account of events from the Nazi invasion of September 1st, 1939, until his arrest uh, in June 1940, is both harrowing, poignant, and even at times ironic. What I think is very special is his ability to convey Polish Jews' reactions in real time, i.e. we feel with them the shock at the invasion, the chaos engendered by the government and army's incapacity, and everybody's desperation when they realize they are trapped with no avenue of escape. Together with the population in Poland, we also experience the initial failure to understand the meaning of the Soviet invasion, it was really a brutal conquest of half of Poland. But thinking that the Soviet army was coming to help them fight the Nazi invaders, Poles initially welcomed the Soviet soldiers with open arms, which now just seems impossible to imagine. People understood what was happening, however, only after the conquerors began to institute the totalitarian Soviet model that Margolin describes. Arrests, deportations, censorship, removal of cultural and political figures and institutions, suppression of Zionism, elimination of private enterprise, which led to enormous scarcities and high prices. What, what I also think is very touching in this section is Margolin's account of the tragic fate various Jewish friends, such as the writer Brown, who is treated relatively well by the Soviets, but he simply cannot endure their dictatorial control of his work. He thus leaves the Soviet side and goes to his death in the Warsaw Ghetto. Another friend chooses the Soviet side, accepts Soviet citizenship, and moves to a village in the, in the Soviet sector. He too perished, but in the Pinsk ghetto after the Nazis' attack on the Soviet Union. Other Jews that he talks about returned to their families who were waiting for them on the Nazi side, and they too perished in ghettos. And Margolin feels that his telling their story is really an effort uh, to memorialize them. They weren't like great people, but they were typical of those who suffered. However, the 
What I also enjoyed was that there's, whoops, there's a lighter side to the uh, Margolin's Poland experience, uh, which concerns the unusual jobs he performed to keep body and soul together when his escape attempts failed. The Soviet-controlled regional education department assigns him to sort through a huge collection of books transported back in Tsarist times to a Pinsk Catholic monastery, a place that had been decidedly off-limits to Margolin as a young Jewish boy growing up in Pinsk. Before his arrival at the church grounds to begin work, soldiers stationed in the building had already managed to burn some of the books for fuel. His job was to establish which books were suitable for a Soviet reader, which were anti-Soviet, and which possessed bibliographical value. The highly educated Margolin was enthralled when he discovered incunabula, that is, books, valuable books printed before 1501. At the same time, Margolin impressed the Soviet censor who wanted to know why he rejected as un-Soviet a book entitled The Theory of Darwinism. Margolin explains that the SJ before the author's name stands for Society of Jesus. And inside, the author denies that man was descended from the monkeys. Margolin resolves to leave the job when he sees his own book on Zionism on a list of works to be destroyed. <laughs> oh, that was enough for him then. So, eh, but the fact that he refused to accept Soviet citizenship led eventually to his arrest as a socially dangerous element. They claimed that, so, that Poland was no longer a country and therefore one could not be a citizen of Poland. Uh, and that was the, the horrible arrest and the start of his travels and trials in the Gulag. I uh, one more on that uh, uh, book rescue project he got involved in. I remember when I was when I was reading that part of the book, uh, I got to wondering uh, what treasures. Uh, were lost that would change how medieval Russian history is seen. Uh, uh, there, there were old church manuscripts that were, ah, we don't know what was lost that got burnt, of course. <laughs> but there were valuable old church manuscripts, which he describes with beautiful findings, illuminated uh, pages and so on, illuminated, you know, uh, Pictures, so it's it. They were obviously some very valuable, but you see, the Tsarist uh, a regime wanted to remove or the uh, Catholics, as it was a, a, a Russian Orthodoxy. So they they were trying. That's why everything was kind of moved away and just thrown into this monastery uh, and heaped up in piles, which he had to put on a special, make a special. Uh, great garment to put on him so all the dust from these books uh, wouldn't get on him when he was working with them. Yeah, it was quite a quite a um, an interesting uh, kind of side story, really, in the, the overall memoir. 
Uh, yeah, do you know, did, did a lot of that stuff get, uh, even the stuff that he rescued, at least temporarily, uh, do you know anything about, you know, the long-term fate of all of those books? No, we really don't. He certainly didn't because he left Poland and, uh, and the Soviets were in charge. Um, we can assume that uh, only, I mean, that the uh, the Incunabula, they obviously tried to sell and you and and utilized it to make money. Um, the ones that were not fit for so-called Soviet use were probably just destroyed. Uh, so only those that were deemed fit for Soviet readers were, were probably the ones that remained in Poland. I don't know exactly. I mean, I don't know personally what happened to the to the valuable books. Yeah, I was just I was just curious. Uh, you know, I was I was wondering about that as I was reading the, uh, you know, the book. Those of us who who read things for a living, you know, mm-hmm. it kind of kind of gets you right there, as the saying goes. You know. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> No. Well, maybe maybe now would be a good time to comment a bit on uh, on uh, Mark Golan's kind of early early camp experience. You know, he's getting shipped off to uh, fell trees and so on. Like, what's his what kind of reactions does he have to his his initial imprisonment and and so on? Well, of course, it's something he. I mean, even from his arrest. Uh, in Poland, where you know he realizes, in a way, as they interrogate him, that uh, you know you can't reason with these people, and I mean that his point that really he's a Polish citizen uh, doesn't matter to them. I mean, they are interested in getting rid of a large population of people that, for them, are unwanted in Poland, and therefore, I mean, he would. The Jews weren't the only ones. There were Polish nationals. He, he, he describes a whole lot of people who, who indeed were shipped out. Um, then uh, even the journey, I think he uh, describes the journey from Poland to the, the forced labor camp beautifully. Uh, the chapter is called The Wandering Coffin. And he mentions that they were not just traveling in this crowded uh, rail car. They were traveling to another dimension. They were leaving civilization, going into a dark night. And I think that's very powerful, the way he describes that. Uh, And then he gets to the camp, more surprises, all of them bad. Uh, He... First of all, I mean, what are the what are the typical aspects of of uh, Soviet labor labor camp? The work is physically beyond his capacity and that of almost all the Poles who were sent to the Gulag with him, especially with the starvation ratio uh, rations that they received. Um, moreover, the work is very senseless. Uh, It's often unnecessary. In fact, Tim Snyder in the uh, forward to the book notes that the sheer pointlessness 
of the work was in itself uh, a source of suffering. Um, moreover, they, there's no logic to who is assigned to what job. For, for example, a barber can be sent to work in the field, and the farmer may be sent to be a cook. And he gives all kinds of examples of this totally uh, illogical uh, work assignments. No, no one is sent to do what they can do, can or enjoy doing, and so that's another way of degrading the zek. Uh, moreover, the work norms are virtually impossible, and those, not the Poles, of course, but those like Russians who try to excel in order to get a better ration, they quickly burn out and they wind up among the feeblest in the camp. There was a, a term in camp for these kind of people. They were called goners, basically. Um, Margolin, in some of the, one of the earlier chapters, he highlights the demeaning aspect of the work in the camp. Uh, there's a word used uh, in the camp to describe, it, it's called rabguj sila, which is a combination of the Russian for manpower and horsepower. It also has intimations of the Russian word rab, which is a slave. Um, and uh, the word man horsepower, Margolin observes, and I quote, joins people and animals together for work tasks and equates them in dignity, value, and destiny. Besides all that, Margolin contends that this inefficient use of manpower is also economically unprofitable. Uh, it's interesting that he's also sensitive to the disastrous ecological side of the camps. In order to build camps such as the one he was in first, Square 48, forests are brutally uprooted, leaving tree stumps ruts and exposed roots all over. And he writes, the roots, then again I quote, give the camp a look of convulsive mute despair, resembling those live beings who scurry among them. He's, he's very poetic in his, in his description. And sent to work at tree felling in the, in the forest, Margolin sadly contrasts the beauty of the nature around them with the cruelty of, of the people in charge. And again, the destruction of this beautiful forest uh, that they are forced to take part in. The most profound chapter of the book is called Dehumanization. And I think this is Margolin at his most skillful. Uh, he describes the harrowing process of losing one's possessions and one's human dignity, the loss of a link to Western civilization. Even as their possessions gradually are stolen, sold, or simply turn into rags, ironically, the Westerners still try to keep the outer signs of civilization. They still address each other as professor, doctor, and so on. But that can't last that long. 
the next, they're soon reduced to wearing rags from the uh, camp warehouse. And basically, as he says, the dehumanized Zek looks like a scarecrow with these strange uh, clothing. The next step is eliminating all family ties. Deliberate transfers from camp to camp also make it impossible to establish any lasting friendships. Basically, what happens is one's whole past life seems like a dream, and all normal human feelings disappear or become deformed, including sexual ones. The food deprivation reduces the zek to the level of a beast. And the loss of self-dignity and eventually of one's own will uh, just leads to oblivion to everything but the sheer effort to survive. But that is not the end, as he says, of the dehumanization process. You have to become a... Per, a, no longer a person, someone who will obediently echo the regime, have no personal longings, no personal feelings. And any outward signs of protest are very rare, he mentions. This is not the kind of case where you have people in camp out there protesting. It's They're too dehumanized for that. And any subconscious feelings that they may have are simply too deeply buried to be dangerous. They just become part of a neurosis. Um, one thing notable about the uh, camps, also in Margolin's time, political prisoners were not separated from the rest of the prisoners. And the foreign prisoners' downward slide was exacerbated by the presence of hardened criminals called or key, and there's some horrible descriptions of how they rob them, threaten them, and totally humiliate them. And in fact, these or key evoked fear even among the camp administrators who don't stop them from from what they do. Uh, and and this brutality and inhumanity simply deepens the hellish atmosphere of the camp. Um, and throughout the book, Margolin emphasizes the distortion or debasement in camp of everything that is normal. Uh, no word or function means what it does in freedom. There's a medical staff, but its goal is not to serve the people who are ill. Its purpose is to keep them fit enough so that they can work no matter what. The camp as a educational sector, but Margolin remarks, being cultured means being clean and not spitting on the floor. And uh, the books have to be guarded because prisoners try to steal them so they can tear out the paper and use it for rolling tobacco. Of course, uh, pro the educational sector, it's its main uh, means of uh, educating people is propaganda and lies. And that is, is just carried to an incredible uh, degree. 
Uh, and as I said, he, he notes that uh, he himself, despite first thinking that he could be an outside observer, in this whole process, he too becomes deformed. So that anything that seems, that is, any manifestation of normality seems strange. At one point when they are coming back from the felling to camp, they see a, a person well-dressed driving by in a sleigh, and they can't like believe it. He looks normal, like this is, oh, there was a normal life. But they have to return to the horrors of the camp and the search for food. Um, it, and ultimately, I would say it's this universal debasement and depletion of that all inmates suffer that is the outstanding feature of camp. Uh, certainly, uh, you could really tell, you know, how deeply he has a, you know, kind of a philosophical way of looking in the world at the world, and that it's not often you read a memoir that has such a clear thesis. I mean. Normally, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't expect to find a thesis in a memoir because that's not usually what memoirs do, but this one certainly has one. Yes, yes, I would say so. As he, he was a philosopher, he wrote, he wrote three uh, essays in camp, but of course they were all taken away <laughs> and obviously just thrown into the garbage before he, uh, on one of his moves. Yeah, I remember reading that section and thinking, oh, no, I want to know what he said, you know. <laughs> but as he wrote, he wrote afterwards, no, you know, he, he may remember what he wrote, but it's never the same, what he wrote in camp as he was feeling it uh, in terms of even the philosophy, uh, uh, even though he tried perhaps to, uh, he, he tried, for example, the, the section uh, on the the doctrine of hate that he did try to reestablish, and that's in the memoir, if you if you recall. Yeah, yeah. I just remember I, I wishing I could have read the original, um, as I'm, I'm sure other people have uh, have wished that uh, as well. Um, you know, something that stood out to me too. You were talking about how there's, you know, the the unfortunate level of success that that dehumanization project achieved and so on. And it struck me too that, I mean, it's not just the, the constant propaganda and the, you know, the other dehumanizing, uh, you know, contacts with the criminals and so on, but it struck me that a lot of it is just the outright, you can't focus on anything if you're that hungry all the time. Yeah. I, I think so. He, he says that. I mean, that's uh, it's a very essential part of the hum dehumanization when all you can think about is how you're going to get your next piece of of food. Oh, and it's also it's very sad in some of the episodes that he describes in the camp, where there's one, for example, where he becomes very friendly with the person who not Jewish, the person who was, what they have in common is a love of books and education, and they become friendly. But then uh, when things just keep on going down, downhill, this friend steals his bread. 
And he doesn't, of course, admit it. And Margolin doesn't at first out and out accuse him of that, although he it takes him a little sleuthing to discover that it's his friend who's stealing his bread. And at first he he does finally uh come out and accuse him of doing that and demand that he return to him what he owes him. And he, like, kind of, as he says, cruelly insists on that. And he kind of humiliates this person. And they stop uh, being friends. Although when this uh, teacher has really reached the final stages, they come in contact again. And Margolin, as the humanist, realizes that he was too hard on this person. And he feels terrible that he made him suffer like that, even though he himself was starving and the main focus of his life also was that piece of bread. But he feels terrible that he did this to another human being. I mean, he, he's very special that way. I, read, I thought as I was reading at multiple occasions, I, I, I noticed that I, I found myself kind of getting sucked into his his hunger and his, uh, uh, that you know, the, the author and then of everybody else, too. I remember at one point in particular, there's a, a scene where him and some his fellow prisoners have discovered this stash of, I think it's potato peels or something, and uh, he's tossed one out the back out the back door into a snowbank and he's hoping that it'll still be there when he gets out. And I realized partway through, I was reading that, that chapter that I was almost kind of white knuckling the, the, the book as I was holding it, hoping that he was going to get his potato peel. And I was realizing that I was feeling extremely hungry myself, just reading about his, his hunger. Is that, I don't know. Is, is that, uh, would you, uh, to me, that was one of the most effective things about the book was how he really kind of brings you into that that mode of living. Is, is that is that something that you found to be true as well as you've been translating it? Yes, I, I think that's one of his uh, most successful techniques. I mentioned it in the earlier part in Poland where you you don't have hindsight. You feel what's going on, the chaos. You don't know what's going to happen next. Am I going to be better off staying on the Soviet side or going to the Nazi side? The Jews did not know at the time. I think that technique also works successfully in camp. Um, yes, I'm going to try and sneak certain food items. There was this fish that some of the men uh, sneak out of a warehouse and uh, some manage to start eating and others don't. Um, there's always this, are they going to succeed? And it's because he's describing it in the very much of the present tense. Um, and, and he doesn't tell you the outcome. You're, you're waiting to find out. I, I, think, he, I think that's a, a, a very successful technique. You know, something that, that uh, stood out to me is another big theme in there. I was wondering if you could comment on this. Uh, is so he, he chronicles this progressive dehumanization and so on, and that's that's kind of the, the the pessimistic side of the book, I suppose. But then, 
you know, there's an optimistic side too, where it, at multiple stages, you know, chance encounters with people, people who take a human interest uh, in him, uh, you know, save his life on, on multiple occasions. He certainly wouldn't have made it out without those people. So I guess what I'm wondering here is, I mean, do you, in light of those in those kind of encounters, which maybe you could speak to as well, I mean, is this ultimately a, a hopeful book that that in the long run, um, you know, individuals being good to each other can can triumph under any kind of circumstances? Yeah, well, I I wouldn't mind talking about that in the context of the book's value uh, altogether today, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, yeah, that would be that would yeah, be great. I I mean I think the book is very timely. Um, yes, it's important as a historical record. As I said, it tells us how people felt then in Poland. It tells us how people felt in the Soviet camp, which of course is something that some people now are trying to uh, airbrush, let's say, out of history books. Um, but I think the most important thing is that this book like any classic literary book, is really timeless. Um, and it's true that we hear uh, some pretty terrible things, uh, and he describes in very heartbreaking detail uh, the, the steps by which this totalitarian system succeeds in, in destroying, not just in the camp, but even outside, uh, everything that makes an individual human um, and what I think is very timely is, unfortunately, such regimes have certainly not disappeared throughout history. And uh, for today, for example, we can mention the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs. If you've read what they do in those camps, it's it's the same attempts at re excuse me, sorry, at uh, rehabilitation, but it's basically to destroy people and to change them. Um, so I think that it, everything there is very apt. Uh, but what the other thing that I think, I think you're very right about the uh, positive side. For one thing, um, the message that he wants to convey is one of respect and tolerance for every human being uh, in a very universalist sense. Um, and, and he insists on the need to expose all injustice and all totalitarian regimes. Um, and what's interesting in, in that sense, I think, is that although he mentions the anti-Semitism found among many nations, despite that, he sympathizes with the national aspirations of different nationalities in the camp who were oppressed under the Soviet system. For example, Ukrainians, Georgians, Belarusians, and Poles. And he becomes friendly with them. He learns from one of them all about Ukrainian culture and history. And he wishes all of them national freedom in the future. Uh, he's even tolerant for some of the really unattractive characters in the book because he realizes that their misfortune is just as profound as that of anyone else. Um, and what you said, I think, is also important because when people, when I talk to people about the subject matter of the book, they sometimes 
are apprehensive that it's depressing. But I think with you that ultimately, especially at a time like ours where things seem rather dispiriting, that its ultimate message is uplifting. In the final section, the return to the West, while Margolin is waiting in Marseille for his ship to Palestine, he reads two works by Jean-Paul Sartre, Being and Nothingness and La Nausée. And he is repelled by what he sees as impotent nihilism, a lack of will that, in his view, enabled a Nazi conquest of Europe. He exclaims, and I'm quoting, I wanted to live. I felt strength and future possibilities within myself, and it was a source of joy. And he felt overwhelmed <coughs> by a feeling of life in and around himself. And he calls uh, in the book on the rest of mankind to join him in a struggle to uproot real evil. And, and in that sense, he is telling us today, yes, hell is real, but you must stand up and fight for what you believe in. He remains optimistic that good can triumph. Yeah, that, that certainly stood out, out to me, that, that thesis of his, as he's talking about the various doctors who befriended him and, and you know, protected him at, at various points. Uh, the, uh, um, you know, how he manages to find, you know, good people in these, in these kind of terrible overall circumstances. I, I thought that was pretty impressive how he manages to strike that note of hope inside that overall context. Yeah, I think that's very true, and that he, he is truly a humanist because he can he can see the good in almost every human being, uh, and that's and given how oppressive his situation was, that's a very rare ability. Yeah, I I certainly thought so. I uh, I was I was wondering, uh, you know, I, I got to the end of the book and. I found myself uh, really kind of uh, kind of disappointed in that he didn't talk at all about what his actual reunion with what his with his family was like. Uh, you know, the book ends while well, he's kind of still on the boat, uh, just about home, uh, as I recall. And I was wondering if that was something you could you could fill me in on here. What? I mean, he hadn't. I don't. I don't recall off the top of my head how old his son was when he left. But of course, his his son would have barely known him. I think. And uh, what, what was his reunion with his wife and his son like? We don't have a description, but we we do know his wife was very also very special, very a welcoming person. I I read uh, a brief little uh, memoir, some written not that long ago, where uh, some woman described the home that they had in Tel Aviv, that they were always welcoming people all the time. They were always guests. They were always very hospitable. Um, the actual reunion with the family, um, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, obviously, it was not easy for his son to have the father away for so long. Incidentally, his son Ephraim, 
now, who is now 94, uh, is living in California. Um, oh, I was, and, I was wondering about that. Um, I was told that, and he very much wanted to see the English publication of his father's memoir. For him, it was very important. Um, and uh, he has been active in Zionist causes. Um, like his father, he was in, when he was in Israel, he was active in the party that was not in uh, the ruling regime at the time. Uh, that was the days of the labor control of the uh, political arena. And uh, he never succeeded in, he was a lawyer, he didn't succeed in getting a satisfactory job. And that's why he uh, now lives in uh, California. Um, <laughs> and he has two children and uh, two grandchildren. But I do think the, the English edition was very, was very important to him. And I, I think it's very important that people one, I think it's a classic literarily. I mean, he just knows how to hone in on the characteristics of an individual, on the human side of an individual, on the foibles of an individual, but to describe it all so, so acutely. Um, I, I, that's, I think it, it is really worth reading for anybody who can enjoy his literature. Um. Maybe maybe wrapping up here uh, it occurs to me a good way to to uh, kind of bring things to a close might be so he's got he's got several uh, you know big ideas in play over the course of the book he's got his his thesis about dehumanization he's got this you know periodic entrances and exits of people who manage to remain human in spite of themselves uh, or in spite of their surroundings I should say. Um, I was wondering, is there is there a particular scene from the book that you think just I don't know re really encapsulates what he's trying to do in the book uh, uh, that 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 you could share with the uh, with the listeners? One that really stands out in your mind as as kind of putting it all together. Uh, I think it's hard to because there's there's so many instances. I mean it. it it's kind of amazing. He went through so many jobs in the camp, and uh, in each crazy job, it, he manages to point out uh, not just that it was difficult or impossible, but to point out what it does to one's humanity, how one becomes treated like an animal or whatever it is. Uh, he points to the human side of every encounter uh, in the book, and there are so many, um, so that, uh, I don't know, I, I would have to think to uh, pick out one in particular, because I really think there are, there are so many. Um, he, he describes all these different people, all these uh, encounters. Um, I, I, I think the most, again, as I said, I think the most important thing in, in, is that 
optimistic message in the end that one can and should use one's life to the best of one's own ability and to the benefit of mankind as a whole and not to give up and fight real evil. Yeah, I certainly got that uh, got that message, which you can kind of, you know, juxtapose with the, the mental image of uh, the author kind of futilely banging his axe against a tree or whatever else it is he's doing in the course of those various camp jobs. You know, oh. there was one thing, though, that I might mention that was, I thought it was kind of t- touching um, and and it exemplifies the whole absurdity of the camp system. They're out there felling trees and they have a short break, a half hour, whatever it is. Uh, and they don't even have lunch. All they get is a little hot water, but they get to rest. And the, his companions are there in a circle. And what do they do? They don't fall asleep. They ask if somebody could explain Einstein's theory of relativity. I remember that. And, and they have a discussion about it. These men who are being worked beyond human endurance, being fed nothing, and living in filth and disgust, they want to discuss, they want to discuss Einstein's relativity during their break. Now, I think that's kind of amazing. And kind of hopeful, too, really. It's uh, uh, something about us that's fundamentally unkillable, no matter what the circumstances may be, I think. Yes, yes, I I agree with you. Is there anything that, that you'd like to tell everybody about the book that you haven't had a chance to do uh, as of yet? I think I pretty much covered everything. Um, I, I say read the book. It's very, very worthwhile, and it's beautifully written by yeah, a very special humanist. Yes, and I would I would echo that too. Uh, any any book that can can bring you into an author's circumstances at that level is is very much worth reading. So uh, thank you for thank you for being with us, Stephanie. I'm sure uh, a lot of people listening to this will be uh, be interested enough to uh, uh, to read Margoline for themselves. Thank you very much for your interview and for your understanding uh, your deep understanding of the work I, I appreciate that thank you so much certainly certainly uh so thanks again for being with us and we'll sign off here okay bye bye